Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline, Firestorm in California. President Trump was in California today as wildfires continue to tear through the state. The death toll from the fires currently stands at 74, while more than 1,000 people remain unaccounted for. Speaking alongside California Governor Jerry Brown and Governor-elect Gavin Newsom, the president promised a robust federal response to the daily blazes. To see what's happened here, nobody would have ever thought this could have happened. So uh, the federal government is behind you. We're all behind each other. As far as the lives are concerned, uh, nobody knows quite yet. We're up to a certain number, but we have a lot of people that aren't accounted for. And uh, this is the kind of destruction. In fact, they're telling me this is even not as bad as some areas. Some areas are even beyond this. They're just charged. Joining us for the latest from Chico, California, CNN correspondent Kaylee Hartung. Uh, what do you know, Kaylee? Well, as he, with smoke still heavy in the air, President Trump visited the site of the most destructive wildfire in California's history. People here welcoming the visit in the sense that they received that promise from him of resources, of support. People here telling me Butte County needs all of the help that they can get. And while some of the president's comments earlier in the week hurt them and outraged them as he threatened to withhold federal funds, this promise of resources is what they truly hope to hear because people here need the help. I am in this pop-up campsite that has been built outside of a Walmart. We are at the bottom of the hill that Paradise sits on top of. Here in Chico, we are about 10 miles away from Paradise, the town that has been wiped off the map, essentially. So many people here coming here in the wake of the chaos of evacuations last Thursday. Some people sleeping in these tents for as many as eight nights now. But this was only supposed to be a short-term solution for people on their long road to recovery. A donation center has been set up at the far end of this parking lot. Volunteers here to offer their time. People continually dropping off supplies from clothing to food and medical supplies. And now the conversations are beginning to be had about what to do with the couple hundred people who are still here in tents, people here who need more permanent solutions. Shelters continue to open and people continue to have the kindness of strangers there to help them. But SE, the hope again being that President Trump's visit here today gave him a better understanding of the dire need that so many people here have. Yeah. Kaylee, thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate your reporting. President Trump appears to have taken a more presidential tone very recently. So here's tonight's other headline, a tale of two Trumps. Since the midterm election losses, President Trump has set a very bad, terrible, no good couple of weeks. And it's shown his original response to the California fires was to callously threaten to pull federal funding, lashing out at California for what he called a gross mismanagement of the forests. In Congress, Democrats continued to win close elections, picking up a net gain of 34 seats. Six races still remain to be called, with Democrats leading in five of them. And yet Trump seemed unchastened. Just yesterday, the president tweeted, people are not being told that the Republican Party is on track to pick up two seats in the U.S. Senate. An epic victory, 53 to 47. The fake news media only wants to speak of the House where the midterm results were better than other sitting presidents. I mean, if that makes you feel better. On another front, the Mueller investigation seems to be closing in on completion, and Trump is feeling the heat. He recently lashed out. 
There should have never been any Mueller investigation because there was never anything done wrong. There was no collusion. There never has been. You would have known about it a long time ago if there was. The witch hunt, as I call it, should never have taken place. It continues to go on. I imagine it's ending now. From what I hear, it's ending. And I'm sure it'll be just fine. And the president's problems cross the pond. Following Trump's disastrous trip to Paris to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the World War I armistice, French Pres President Emmanuel Macron took a clear shot at Trump in a speech slamming nationalism, embarrassing the president while he sat watching. And as we'll discuss later, a judge just ruled in favor of his favorite nemesis, CNN, demanding the White House return Jim Acosta's press pass. And his favorite news outlet, Fox News, sided with us. Trump says he's going to write new rules for the media to follow when questioning him. These are the actions of a president who finds his roster of stooges shrinking and his back against the wall. So that's post-election Trump 1.0. But in just the past 24 hours, we've seen a different Trump. Today, as he toured the California wildfires with Governor Jerry Brown and Governor-elect Gavin Newsom, he heaped praise on the Democratic officials and struck a far more sympathetic and collaborative tone, even suggesting he'd work with environmental groups in the future. Also today, he praised Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, whom he said fought brilliantly and hard. She will have a terrific political future. And Florida candidate Andrew Gillum, who he said would be a strong Democratic warrior long into the future, a force to reckon with. We're also seeing a contrite Trump who, in an interview with Fox News' Chris Wallace, expressed some rare regret for not visiting Arlington Cemetery on Veterans Day. Now, I won't use the dreaded P word, pivot, but is Trump 2.0 softening in defeat? Or is he just taking a short time out from his usual fire and fury? Here's the deal. I'll believe Trump 2.0 is more than just a blip when I see it. After all, life is about to get pretty rough for the president. For one, governing is hard work, and it's about to get harder without Republicans controlling all the levers. His three-hour workday is about to go bye-bye. There's also the deluge of investigations, subpoenas, and hearings coming his way. With Democrats retaking the House, the next two years will be the equivalent of a rectal exam for Trump. And at this point, there's little he can do about it. Then there's the lack of trust in the people around him. According to reports, he's preparing to fire several key allies, including Chief of Staff John Kelly, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. It's a culling of an already small list of confidence and loyal advisors. Then there's his shrinking base. If the midterms have shown us anything, it's that it's not as big as it once was and can't be relied upon to carry him over the goal line in 2020. All this means Trump 1.0 is likely to return and with a vengeance. All right, for more on this, let me bring in my guests, CNN political commentators, Republican strategist Kevin Madden and Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. Uh, welcome, guys. Kevin, I'll start hey, yes. with you. Great to be with you. Let's be honest, this is not a small deal. We should acknowledge Trump has changed his tone in the past 24 hours. He is not prone to self-reflection, self and yet he said maybe he should have gone to Arlington. Um, he's been praised on political opponents, including Nancy Pelosi. Is it possible he's been a little chastened by defeat? <laughs> no. No, okay. it's been 24 hours. No. Yeah, 
No. <laughs> it's been 24 hours. Let's judge it against yes. the past 600 days, right? right. Uh, now, every once in a while in those past 600 days or so, uh, yeah, there have been 24-hour periods where we've all taken a step back and said, well, that's interesting. Um, but Trump, <laughs> you know. New. Yeah, but, but Trump very much lives in a reflection of, like, the last 30 minutes of mm-hmm. what he's seen personally. And he, he is yeah. very much a reactionary politician. And, you know, it's impossible, I think, for the president to go out there, be a, around all the first responders, be around the people that are affected by those fires, yeah. and, you know, not have a more conciliatory tone or a more yeah. thoughtful tone about uh, the think. presidency. Right. And then yeah. also, I think, in being asked questions on a very friendly news network like Fox News uh, and the interview tomorrow... That that's supposed yeah. to air tomorrow, um, having a little bit of contrition in the moment. But yeah. I could gar- I could gar- if I had one guarantee, it was that if that was asked by another news network or a journalist that he did not view very favorably, he yeah. would have given a very entirely different argument and would have been argumentative towards that, uh, to, to the yeah. question. So I mean, Maria, uh, let's do give you it think, another 24 yeah. hours. No, it, it's good advice. Maria, I mean, one could also argue maybe he's just sort of progressing through the stages of grief. First there was anger, <laughs> then a little denial, yeah. now maybe acceptance. Right. Uh, what do you make of the last 24 hours of Trump? <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree with you when you said that you're not, you won't believe Trump 2.0 yeah. until we actually yeah. see it. And with Kevin as well, you know, let's give this 24 hours. But I will posit this. Let's remember that a reason why so many Republicans ended up supporting Trump was with the hope, not just of the the P word, like you called it, the pivot, which never (laughs) came, but also the fact that he could be a deal maker. Let's think about this just for a second, right? You have now a Democratic Congress, and he saw this, and, you know, he did praise Nancy Pelosi, surprising to all of us, even saying that she deserved the win and that he would get Republican support for her, which is kind of laughable. But, you know, I, I, I gave him, I gave him kudos for that. You know, it's sort of a nod to bipartisanship. So what if now the deal-making Trump is thinking about arising finally? He could get something on infrastructure. Mm. He could get a deal on immigration, which has eluded, you know, Democratic presidents, Republican presidents in the past. Now, what will that mean for his base? Will his base let him do it? Will his anti-immigrant advisors that surround him at the moment let him do it, like Stephen Miller? We don't know, but perhaps that is something that is, is, you know, going on in his head saying, hey, I could become the deal maker that I told everyone I was so good at doing that he hadn't really been able to pull mm. off to the extent that everybody thought. We'll see. Again, yeah. until I see no, it, I won't believe it, but it's a possibility. He could come off with a lot of wins if he actually went that path. Hmm. Uh, Kevin, I, I came across a quote um, the other day from a senior White House official who told R.J. Tapper, quote, in this administration, there are arsonists and there are firefighters. The president is looking to get rid of the firefighters. Uh, That's quite colorful. Uh, Do you think, you know, do you think it's going to get worse over the next few weeks and certainly after January when Democrats take the House? Yeah, well, I think, look, one of the problems right now is that um, the, the president is feeling a lot of tension because of the looming um, uh, prospects of possible indictments coming down from and right. the Mueller investigation coming to a close. Uh, and one of the problems that happens there is that you, in any administration, when you have something, some, something bad like that happen, you have turnover. But you also have turnover at the end of, usually after the end of the first two years. So a lot of that is natural. So yeah. a lot of these folks are going to be leaving um, the White House, some trying to get new jobs, others maybe going to the campaign and getting ready for the reelect. Um, but that kind of turnover right now at a time where you're about to feel 
uh, some, mm. uh, the, you know, the weight of investigations and subpoena power from House Democrats. Uh, it's, it's, I suspect that the chaos inside the White House uh, is only going to get worse in the next few yeah. months. Uh, I ahead. think you're right. Yeah. Uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> we'll see you next Thanks, time. Thanks, Great to be with All you. All right. <laughs> Check in next time after another 24 hours. Uh, I'll speak to a Republican congressman next about how his party will adjust to the new House dynamic and later with the Florida recount winding down, a look at the very latest. January 3rd, that will make a new day in America as Republicans who've held the majority since 2011 will find themselves at a deficit of at least 34 seats in the House when the 116th Congress takes office. The caucus has already chosen its new leadership Congressman Kevin McCarthy of California easily defeated Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan for minority leader in a vote of 159 to 43. Also moving up the ladder, Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming. She'll be taking over as GOP conference chairman. And the first conservative House Freedom Caucus member to rise to a leadership position will not be Jim Jordan, but Alabama's Gary Palmer, who will become policy committee chairman. For more on the People's House, let me bring in Republican Congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger. Uh, Congressman Kevin McCarthy acknowledged the significant loss the GOP sustained in the suburbs, but he wouldn't pin the blame on the president. Uh, of course, President Trump himself said, pretend I'm on the ballot, making it a referendum on Trump. Now, I get Republicans have to spin the loss publicly, but internally, do you think House Republicans got the message from the elections? I think that remains to be seen, you know, and, and meeting with a lot of my colleagues this week and we kind of try to figure out what happened. Yeah. You know, the first, some people say, well, we didn't embrace Trump enough. And then some hmm. people say, well, you know, it's, it's the tone of the president. I think it's, I think it's the tone. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at a lot of like my district, for instance, very big supporters of, of President Trump and, and he does very well in my district. But yeah. then you look at the district by mine, Randy Halkerin. Uh, Peter Roskam, uh, right. there's no doubt, and I think we have to admit this, that suburban women are uncomfortable with the tone, even if they like the policies. And so yes, I think as are. a party, you know, it's, incumbent, it's incumbent on us now as we go into this new being in the minority, I think to really look inside and say, how are we talking about these issues? How are we selling them to the next generation? How is it, do we have a poverty agenda, for instance? Do we have an agenda to help restore human dignity? Uh, these are, I think, good conversations. And, and I'm hoping yeah. that, well, I don't want to be in the minority. That it's maybe an opportunity to look inside. But you, if people like you have those conversations. People like Paul Ryan have those conversations. They speak very well, I think, about those issues. What can you do, though, especially now in the minority, when, you know, the guy at the top of, of the, the party, the guy in the Oval Office, doesn't really seem to care about tone? Yeah, I mean, all, all I can do is be responsible for myself and how I speak. And I think, yeah. you know, and, and I've failed. I have crossed the red line in my tone before, and I'll probably do it again. But I try every day now. And I've recommitted this to be aware of, you know, it's one thing to get in heated political arguments. It's one yeah. thing to say, you know, as an example, Democrats uh, want to do bad things to health care. But it's a different thing to say Democrats or Republicans want to kill people or want to deny yeah. people, you know. And so how we talk about it, I think one of the greatest gifts we can give the next generation of people coming up now is restoring how we talk about things, how we debate. We can be passionate and fiery. John McCain was passionate and fiery. 
but he never yeah. lost respect for people, and people never lost respect for him. We need that gift back to the next generation of Americans, and yeah. I'm responsible for myself. I'll call out the president if I need to, and I'll support him every way I can, but you know, that's where I hope we can spend the next couple of years getting back to. So how do House Republicans plan to work with Democrats, and what are some of the issues you feel sanguine about finding some common ground? Well, you know, it's really going to depend on the Democrats. Depend, you know, we're going to go right into a presidential election. So the question is, and yeah. I've dealt with this, I, I was in the class that took the majority, and there were a lot of people that just said, let's make, you know, our, our agenda now to make sure President Trump or Obama at the time doesn't get reelected. So, yeah. you know, the question is, do they want to work with Republicans on some things or just deny the president wins? That's, that's only something they can answer, where I think we can have some impact. As was mentioned, infrastructure, but we have to figure yeah. out how to pay for that, and we have to figure out how to reform how we do infrastructure. I think job training, because there's low unemployment, but there's a lot of people that are mismatched with jobs available out there. So I th mm -hmm. opioid crisis, of course, continues to be huge. So I think there's a lot of areas where we can get some success if we can put aside, which is the big if, uh, you know, the, the next election-ism again that we always get into. Right. Um, you were really critical of the president for dancing on the graves of some of the House candidates that lost. One of those candidates was Mia Love. Uh, it turns out, latest reporting, she might win um, that race after all. What do you think the president should say about that, if anything? Well, what I think he should say is call Mia and congratulate her when she's declared the winner. And I think you know, realize that people like Mia, like Peter Roscombe, Randy Hawker, and, you know, a lot of our friends that lost, they didn't lose because they weren't embracing the president. They, they lost because it was a very tough year for them. And, right. you know, they, they put in a lot of hours to try to do what they think is right, even if somebody doesn't agree with their positions. Mia is a fantastic member of Congress. She's one of my favorite. Uh, I hope to God she comes back because she just does a great job, loves her district, yeah. loves her country, and really is the kind of story, when you hear her story, that the Republican Party ought to be embracing. Right. Uh, I agree. Uh, I wonder if the president will hear that message and embrace her again. All right, Congressman Kinzinger, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Anytime. You bet. All right, up next, now that the courts have weighed in, will the White House change its stance with the press? And still ahead, it's decision time for Trump as the CIA says the Saudi crown prince ordered the murder of a journalist. It's the War of the Roses, Conway edition. Conservative lawyer George Conway, the husband of presidential counselor Kellyanne Conway, has once again unleashed on the president, calling the administration a shit show in a dumpster fire in a Yahoo News podcast released yesterday. Despite the fact that his wife is one of Trump's top defenders, George Conway has been a frequent critic of the, of the administration, as this interview attests what started out as Twitter salvos has transcended mere never-Trumper laments. This month, he penned an anti-Trump New York Times op-ed, and this week he established Checks and Balances, a group of conservative lawyers who question the president's adherence to the law. Trump himself has referred to George dismissively as Mr. Kelly and Conway, saying, quote, he's just trying to get publicity for himself. And remember a while back, Kellyanne was caught trying to plant criticism of her own husband in the Washington Post, but as an anonymous source. 
So they might not be fighting over Yadro statues, and so far no one's cooked the family pet, but something tells me this war of the Conways is far from over. We'll be back in two minutes. <laughs> In the red file tonight, a new ruling puts the White House in its place. Just yesterday, federal judge Timothy Kelly, appointed by President Trump, ordered the White House to return CNN chief White House correspondent Jim Acosta's press credentials. Those credentials were revoked for reasons, reasons the White House changed multiple times. And that is exactly why the judge ruled as he did, saying whatever process occurred within the government is still so shrouded in mystery that the government at oral argument could not tell me who made the initial decision. The judge did not, however, rule on the underlying First and Fifth Amendment case for which further court filings are due on Monday. But this story is not just about Jim Acosta. And you can see that in the long list of news outlets, including Fox News, that filed amicus briefs with the court. It is ultimately about the relationship between the press and the government and how that should work and how it's currently not working. Okay, let me bring in CNN chief media correspondent, host of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter. So what's the latest in this case and what are you watching for next week? Right, right now we've only run round one. So CNN yeah. is wondering how many more rounds are there going to be? Yeah. Is the Department of Justice going to take this much further in the courts or will they kind of quietly back down mm. and seek a settlement? Uh, our head counsel who's working for us from the outside, Ted Boutros, right. he said to me, we are open to anything. CNN's open to any kind of settlement uh, to resolve this as long as Acosta is able to just get back to work, stay at work and not get hassled like Do this job. again. Yeah. Right. Um, let's talk about how average viewers might see this. Yeah. Um, because I was in D.C. when the whole Acosta-Trump thing happened, and I saw how average viewers saw it. I, I got a lot of their feedback. <laughs> Many clearly see the president as hostile to the press. However, others said Acosta was too aggressive. Some uh, think that he's making himself the story. But that's a two-way street, because hmm. the president makes reporters the story. He singles them out. He's he wants done the this. Fight. He wants the, yeah. yeah, he did this with Sarah Murray on the campaign trail. He's called Maggie Haberman a third-rate reporter. Right. He singled me out. He said, I'm yep. boring and CNN should fire me. When the president makes a reporter the story or a member of the media the story, right. How do you how do you handle that? I think that is a, a conundrum, and yeah. the conundrum is really on display with Acosta. It is true; some people don't like his style. They think he asks too he's too aggressive or too opinionated. Right. But the point is, Trump shouldn't get to decide. CNN should get to decide if Acosta's style is right. And what I love mm. about CNN's mm. situation is we have all these different White House reporters, and they all have different styles. Yeah. And Acosta has one style, and Jeff Zeleny has a style, and Caitlin Collins and Abby Phil, everybody right. has different styles. That's the way it should be. Yeah. And Trump shouldn't get to pick which style works. Yeah. The bosses here should get to pick. The bosses at NBC and the New York Times, they should get to pick which reporters are covering the White House and how they approach the jobs. And I think we benefit when there are reporters with different styles. Mm -hmm. So, okay, all right, Acosta's in there. He's asking a question that you might think is too opinionated. Great. Let's call on somebody else then and get a wide variety of opinions. And I think Trump actually likes that too. Yeah. After all, he called on Acosta last oh, week. Oh, he likes He options. chose to yeah. call on Acosta last <laughs> totally. week, right? Um, I want to ask you about something. We've heard a lot since Trump took office. And just last night, Carl uh, Bernstein yeah. had this advice for the press. Take a listen. I think we need to be rethinking how we conduct these briefings and what our response is to the press conferences and briefings when the president of the United States basically uses them as an occasion to lie 
for agitprop and to manipulate the press. I don't think we should necessarily be running them verbatim from beginning to end. I think it's like giving him free airtime during the campaign. I think we need to reevaluate how we engage with the president, not get ourselves manipulated. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, I love Carl, but how many times have you heard this call to maybe rethink the way we cover him? And what does that look like? I would love to know. I think he's bringing up something really important, but yeah. it is a struggle in newsrooms like this one, a struggle to figure out what the right answer is. Now, right. for example, uh, CNN and MSNBC really aren't showing Trump's rallies anymore, yeah. unless there's big breaking news that night. I think that's the right answer because those rallies are rarely filled with news. But what would he do for today, for example? Today, the president's on the West Coast uh, visiting these sites of these horrific fires, and he's saying a lot of things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. He's talking a lot about forest management, as if the real problem is that we need to rake the forest. Raking. Raking. That is not a realistic answer. Uh, firefighters and scientists have been pretty clear mm -hmm. that he is not on the right track here. Mm -hmm. uh, the climate change is a much more important factor. Uh, the head of the International Association of Firefighters said the president was being reckless and insulting to the men and women on the ground there. So what do we do in that case? Do in the moment, not, do right. Do we not show his events? Do we wrap them in context? Do we, do we start by saying, okay, the president's got a lot of nonsense he's sharing today. Here's what he said, we're gonna show it to you, mm. and then come out and try to fact check it? That, I think, is probably closer to the right yeah. answer, but it is a struggle, and it's a struggle that's no happening in answers. all these newsrooms yeah. uh, because we have a president who continues to spread misinformation, misinformation every day. Yeah. Brian yeah. Stelter, thanks. And right. Brian will have more on the standoff between the White House and the press on Reliable Sources tomorrow morning at 11 here on CNN. Up next, does she have the votes breaking down the battle for Speaker of the House? Democrat Andrew Gillum just an hour ago conceded to Congressman Ron DeSantis in the race for Florida governor. But there's still a statewide hand recount underway for a U.S. Senate seat. Democratic Senator Bill Nelson is hoping to overcome a deficit of more than 12,000 votes against current Florida Governor Rick Scott, a prospect which has grown increasingly unlikely over the past 24 hours. For the latest from Florida, let me bring in CNN political reporter Dan Merica. What do you know? Uh, all eyes are firmly on Bill Nelson at this point. Andrew Gillum getting out of the race not only takes a Democrat out of that contest and concedes the race to Ron DeSantis, but it means Bill Nelson lost his best person at his side during this recount, touting that they want every vote counted. All focus, all pressure is now on the senior senator from Florida, whose hand recount will end tomorrow. He's within 12,000 votes of Governor Rick Scott. It would be historic, frankly, it would buck historical trends if he were to be able to close that. And Democrats haven't done enough over the last week, both at the vote counting sites and in the, in the courtroom here in Tallahassee, to find enough votes to expand the universe of votes to actually close that gap. And it seems highly unlikely at this point that Nelson will be able to do that. On Gillum, it was a long time coming for him. He had a much wider gap, about 33,000 votes to close. Yeah. It was a long time coming for him to concede this race. What is next for him is the big question. He has set himself up through this race as a rising star who probably already has risen in the Democratic Party. A lot of eyes will be on him and what he does next, Essie. Yeah. Uh, Dan, thanks for reporting on this. Appreciate it. To another battle, Nancy Pelosi says she has the votes to become the next Speaker of the House, but not everyone agrees. A letter circulating among House Democrats is urging caucus members to take a pass on Pelosi in favor of new leadership. The text of the letter obtained by CNN reads in part, our majority came on the backs of candidates who said that they would support new leadership because voters in hard-won districts and across the country want to see real change in Washington. Therefore, we are committed to voting 
for new leadership in both our caucus meeting and on the House floor. Now, at least 20 Democrats have publicly committed to opposing Pelosi's bid. And if leads in outstanding House races hold, she can only lose 15 caucus members and still come out on top. One person on her side, surprisingly, President Trump promised his support of the San Francisco lawmaker this morning. I would help Nancy Pelosi if she needs some votes. She may need some votes. I will perform a wonderful service for her. I like her. Can you believe it? I like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she's tough and she's smart, but she deserves to be speaker. And now they're playing games with her. Hmm, what's going on there? <laughs> for more on the Democratic leadership battle, let me bring in Hillary Rosen and Alice Stewart. Uh, Alice, let me start with you. Trump has now voiced his support for Pelosi a few times over the past week or so. Is he trolling her? Is this a strategy? What do you make of it? Well, see, the president has done some remarkable things in politics, but uh, his ability to convince Republicans to support Nancy Pelosi, I think, is a pipe dream. Any Republican that casts a vote for Nancy Pelosi might as well call a U-Haul truck and move out of Washington, D.C., yeah. because they won't get reelected. And the yeah. reality is she does have an uphill battle. The, the, as you mentioned, yeah. the, the young, fresh faces of the Democratic Party uh, have campaigned on saying that they would not vote for Nancy Pelosi. So yeah. she's right now in a, a full-fledged a battle to, to get her seat back, playing basically bachelorette, uh, taking people out to dinner and whining and dining and one-on-one -on -one dates and hoping she gets the rose. But it will be difficult. But as a Republican, it's nice to sit back and watch Democrats uh, engage in chaos and bloodletting. And we'll just sit back and watch. Uh, well, Hillary, uh, about that chaos and bloodletting, I just, um, 10 minutes ago while the show was on, got an email from a House Democrat who said, and I'm, I'll quote, on background, um, Pelosi is trying effectively to erase the women who have been leading this effort from the beginning so she can pin it on, quote, white guys, Kathleen Rice, Linda Sanchez, and Marsha Fudge, diverse women too. Even if the five white guys, in quotes, all voted for her, she wouldn't have the votes. That's from a Democrat in the House. Well, obviously, that's from a Democrat who's not for Nancy Pelosi. Look, I, I think Nancy Pelosi has the, you know, support of a, the, the significant majority of House Democratic women in that caucus. So I don't, I don't think this is about whether or not women support um, Nancy. Mm. They do. I, I do think, though, that this kind of call for new leadership against uh, the speaker when those same guys are not making that call against, you know, Steny Hoyer, the number two, or mm -hmm. um, uh, Jim Clyburn, the number three, who are all, you know, the same age is, you know, I, that's what makes women ma angry. That's what offends, uh, uh, you know, Leader Pelosi. So mm. I, but having said that, I will tell you that I, she does not take this uh, sitting down. She believes that there needs to be a way to bring the caucus together to take care of those moderate members who won in sort of pro-Trump districts, as well as taking care of those members who won mm. in very progressive districts. There's really nobody in the House who understands every district better than Nancy Pelosi. That's yeah. why she's going to well, win. Well, and Alice, I, you know, you're, you're gloating sort of about the, the, the you, know, wa you know, watching with popcorn. But Republicans, I mean, you tell me as a strategist, do Republicans want Nancy Pelosi as the face of the party? They want her to be speaker or would they um, prefer some some fresh face, some new some new blood, as it were? 
a lot of them look at it from the political standpoint. Who's yeah. been a tremendous foil for Republicans for many years? Nancy Pelosi. You go across this country, and they will. Many people, Republicans, say, "I'm going to vote against anybody who uh, yeah. will support the Nancy Pelosi agenda." So, from that standpoint, she is. Uh, a lot of Republicans would support her. There are others, though, that would like to see some. Uh, new faces, some new perspective uh, mm. to help work with uh, Republicans across the aisle. Some of the names uh, that have come up, certainly Marsha Fudge would be one, Sidney Hoyer or, uh, or others, that they just think that in order to get things done in Washington, they need someone that will be more willing to negotiate. But from a political standpoint, no, hmm. there's no better foil for Republicans than Nancy Pelosi. Look, well, I, I, I think two quick ahead. points, Essie, yeah. which is Real quick. number one, there's nothing new about Marsha Fudge or Steny Hoyer. They've both been around a really long yeah. time. Yeah, um, true. And that the second thing is that, you know, I, it's naive and, and, and downright goofy to think that um, any Democratic leader is going to all of a sudden be um, uh, you know, welcomed by Republicans across the country. It doesn't, you know, they could elect Donald Duck the leader and then Donald Duck will then be the Republican foil in the next election. So these these candidates who don't think that they're going to get attacked for their Democratic leader, that somehow the Republicans will be nicer to them if they vote against yeah. Nancy Pelosi are just living in a fantasy world. Uh, Hillary Ellis, thanks. It'll definitely be interesting to watch over the next few weeks. Thanks. Up next, yeah, thanks. How far is the president willing to go to keep his close ties with Saudi leadership? And for much more expert analysis on crucial foreign policy issues facing America, subscribe to my new podcast, Weekend Warriors. You can listen on Apple, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. The State Department says the U.S. government has not made a final conclusion on who is responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. That follows several sources telling CNN that the CIA has concluded the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi was personally ordered by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a direct contradiction to earlier claims by the Saudi government that bin Salman was not involved. Saudi officials still deny the claims. In a statement released just hours ago, State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert said... Recent reports indicating that the U.S. government has made a final conclusion are inaccurate. There remain numerous unanswered questions with respect to the murder of Mr. Khashoggi. The State Department will continue to seek all relevant facts. Earlier today, the president said he'd not yet been briefed on the latest information, but the White House has since confirmed he was briefed by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and CIA Director Gina Haspel while traveling on Air Force One to the California wildfires. So what will Trump do in response? He once promised severe punishment if the Saudis were found responsible. Joining me now is CNN national security analyst Samantha Vinograd. Sam, first, what do you make of this latest CIA report? Credible? Should we believe it? Well, what I make is a, of it is that these high-confidence intelligence assessments just don't appear out of nowhere. It's mm. not like the CIA took the past several weeks and said, Mr. President, we'll get back to you on what's happening. In my experience, as the CIA reviews more intelligence and develops more confidence in its analysis, mm -hmm. it's still providing the president and certain members of his team with updates on what they know. And so the notion that the president didn't know where this was leading, mm. that the Saudi crown prince probably wasn't responsible for the killing, is completely nonsensical to me. Mm. So we know the president's been hoping for a reason to not take serious action against MBS. Um, Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Arabia is a key ally of ours in the region. But can he decide to believe 
Saudi Arabia propaganda over our own intelligence? Well, he could just continue to wear intelligence earmuffs. He's done uh -huh. this with Russia when the intelligence community has a high confidence assessment, which he discounts. Mm -hmm. But he could also just choose, for example, not to do something as simple as scheduling a National Security Council meeting. Because remember, hmm. intelligence is supposed to be an input to policy decisions. If the president doesn't convene a meeting with his policy team, this intelligence, even if it is crystal clear, mm. could just die and go away. So if the president wants to kick the can down the road yeah. and not actually make a decision on what to do, he could just refuse to convene his policy team with his intelligence analysts mm. so that they can develop a response together. So what what are the global consequences if um, if there is inaction, delay, sort of kicking the can down the road over the state ordered killing of a Washington Post journalist? What how, how do our allies see that? How do our enemies see that? I think there's only one way to see it. We are condoning murder. Mm. If we do not hold the ringleader of this operation culpable, we are greenlighting other operations. What happened? 17 people were sanctioned. Okay. Yeah. So they were sanctioned. They won't be able to travel to the U.S. Their assets are frozen. But Mohammed bin Salman is really crystal clear that he can, can maybe have another murder go forward. Mm -hmm. Just like Vladimir Putin wasn't deterred from hacking our election because right. we have not directly held him responsible, mm -hmm. we are opening the door for MBS just to do this again. So those 17 uh, Saudi sanctions, can Trump claim... Look, I did that. It's enough. That's sufficient. He could, but it does not get at the heart of the problem, which in this case is Mohammed bin Salman, mm -hmm. and will not deter MBS, or for that matter, any other leader, from taking action again. 17 of Mohammed bin Salman's operatives were sanctioned, just like how many uh, Russian operatives have we sanctioned for their mm -hmm. attack on the United States? Mm -hmm. It doesn't really change the dynamic because the perpetrator of the crime is not held responsible. In terms of uh, crimes against the press and threats to the free press. How significant an episode is this? We, by not holding Mohammed bin Salman accountable, are saying that we are completely comfortable with the murder of someone who is simply exer exercising the right of free speech and the free press. So this is an enormous, enormous downside risk to the free press going forward. And again, unless President Trump directly punishes MBS, mm. we're saying that the free press and free speech don't really matter. Right, which makes it really hard when we try to scold other nations uh, for their human rights violations and their attacks on the press uh, if we don't hold accountable and give a free pass. perpetrator and give, a, and give a free pass. It sends a very, very dangerous message. Sam, thanks so much thanks. for your reporting. I appreciate it. Uh, that's it for us tonight.